This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kyber.org to download or purchase this book. The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained, 2010, Stephen C. Perks, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Appendix A, Scripture and the Covenants. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, 31-33 It is a sad fact that many professing Christians today do not take seriously the greater part of Scripture. Three quarters of the Bible has been relegated to virtual obscurity, namely the Old Testament. It is a common view that the teachings of the Old Testament have been superseded by the teachings of the New and are thus no longer applicable to the Christian life. Old Testament doctrine, particularly the law, is seen as inadequate and barbarous, or at least unsuitable for modern times. This attitude is not confined to the nominal Christians who attend church each week out of habit, a sense of duty, or a desire to maintain tradition. Nor is it an attitude that we find only among the theologically liberal elements of church life. The fact of the matter is that this view of Scripture has gained a strong influence over the supposedly reformed and evangelical elements within our churches. I would go even further and say that, to the shame of so-called evangelicals, this attitude is increasingly a characteristic feature of modern evangelicalism. Of course, most evangelicals would deny this and maintain that they hold to the traditional orthodox view of the infallibility of Scripture. But this disclaimer is, to a great extent, merely the paying of lip service to the doctrine of the plenary authority of Scripture. In practice, the story is very different. Practically, Scripture is often abandoned in favour of the wisdom of men. Although this is especially true with regard to the teachings of the Old Testament, it is by no means uncommon with regard to those of the New Testament either. This trend can be observed in all aspects of the Christian life today, individually and in the organisation and running of most churches, both administratively and pastorally. Fidelity to Scripture is at a low ebb. Most Christians would probably be hard-pushed to think of a church today which is not in the midst of some kind of debilitating crisis or controversy, whether due to personality and disciplinary problems, or simply bad government of the church by negligent elders and ministers little suited to the task of leadership. It must be said that this deplorable state of affairs largely boils down to the unwillingness of many Christians to take God's words seriously in its entirety. Indeed, it is not uncommon to find both elders and congregations in open rebellion against God's word, 
showing disregard and even contempt for the plain teaching of Scripture. Yet, if a church is to be built up or right, it must be built on the foundation of God's Word. If we abandon that foundation, both individually and corporately, in our relationships with each other and in our church life, then judgment will inevitably be the outcome. The state of the church in Britain today is a vivid testimony to this truth. The spiritual condition of the church today and our nation is appalling. And this is a judgment upon us for our infidelity to God's word. And the primary responsibility for this situation lies with those who are in the positions of leadership. In view of the seriousness of this situation, it is vital that we understand and appreciate the importance of adherence to Scripture. With regard to the New Testament, I think most Christians would agree here. In principle, though certainly not always in practice, the New Testament is accepted as our guide by most Christians, at least among those who call themselves Reformed or Evangelical. It is with regard to the scriptures of the Old Testament that the problem is at its most acute. Many simply do not believe that the Old Testament is important. It is read mostly for the purpose of illustration or analogy, or else its teachings are spiritualized away. The application of Old Testament scripture is virtually non-existent in most churches today. This being the case, I shall consider here in very general terms, number one, what the New Testament has to say about the nature of the writings of the Old Testament, number two, why the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments must be seen as a whole, number three, what it is that the whole of scripture contains, and number four, why it is so important that we should understand and apply our lives and culture, number four, why it is so important that we should understand and apply to our lives and culture the teachings of the whole of Scripture, including the Old Testament. 1. The New Testament View of Old Testament Scripture What insights can we gain about the nature and abiding validity of the Old Testament from the writings of the New Testament? In the first place, it is quite clear even from a cursory reading of the New Testament, that it is written throughout from the perspective of the Old Testament. The writers of the New Testament were steeped in the scriptures of the Old. They assumed the validity, authority and trustworthiness of these writings and quoted from them freely. Without question, they considered the scriptures of the Old Testament to be inspired by God and therefore infallible. Thus the Apostle Peter writes, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 Second, the authors of the New Testament considered the Scriptures of the Old Testament to be a revelation of God's grace, sufficient enough to lead men to salvation, through faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation 
through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 Not only are these scriptures sufficient to lead men to faith in Christ, they are also able to train us and equip us with the teaching and guidance necessary for a life of righteousness and good works. For, Paul goes on to say, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 The scriptures of which Paul is here referring are, quite obviously, those of the Old Testament. The early Christians did not have a New Testament. Their Bible consisted entirely of the Old Testament scriptures, and their respect for the authority of these writings is indisputable. These arguments alone ought to be strong enough to rid us of any idea that the writings of the Old Testament are of little importance. But there is more. Third, and most importantly, Christ himself validated the scriptures of the Old Testament and in no uncertain terms declared that their authority was permanent. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five seventeen to 19 Christ teaches quite clearly here that the law and the prophets have permanent validity. Their teachings are therefore applicable to us today, no less than to those who lived before Christ. The Christian faith is here firmly established by Christ himself on the scriptures of the Old Testament. Thus, the authors of the New Testament considered the writings of the Old Testament to be of divine origin, infallible, and therefore authoritative for the Christian era. Fourth, in his second epistle, the Apostle Peter speaks about those who twist scriptures to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 It ought to be said here that the excessive spiritualizing of the Old Testament, which is so common today, does not do justice to its content. The Old Testament is simply not that kind of document. The scriptures of the Old Testament are very down-to-earth and concrete writings. They were not written to be spiritualized. The earthiness of the Old Testament does not always come over in translation with anything like the force that it had in the original language. Both the language and the content of these scriptures often have a raw impact that we are unable to appreciate through reading many of our translations, especially modern translations. To spiritualize the Old Testament is really to empty it of its true content. Furthermore, such spiritualizing was alien to the worldview of the Hebrew nation in those times. The kind of spiritualizing that is engaged in today would have been foreign to the Hebrew mind, and thus to read the Old Testament in that way is to miss the significance of what it is saying. This is not to say that the Old Testament is not useful for the purpose of illustration and analogy. 
but it should not be seen only in these terms. Its teachings are suitable for concrete application in our times. A proper understanding of the teachings of the Old Testament is vital if we are to recover that truly biblical world and life view which is indispensable for an effectual and sustained reconstruction of our lives, churches and nation in terms of the Christian faith. Number 2. The Unity of Scripture The Scriptures contain the progressive unfolding of God's redemptive special revelation. That revelation finds its completion in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But the revelation of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ presupposes the revelation that came before Christ and, as we have seen, Christ upheld that revelation and bore witness to its abiding validity. Thus, God's revelation must be seen as a whole and, because the scriptures are the inspired written record of that revelation, the scriptures themselves must be seen as a whole. It is of the utmost importance, therefore, that we do not break up the scriptures into parts that are still valid and others that are not, or make unwarranted and forced distinctions between them. Christ accepted the Old Testament scriptures and saw his own work as our Redeemer as the continuation and fulfilment of their teachings. The law and the prophets were the foundation upon which he built, and this so because it is the law and the prophets which speak of the things concerning Christ. Luke 24, 27 To diminish the teachings of the Old Testament is thus to diminish the teachings and work of Christ himself. The scriptures are a whole, comprising Old and New Testaments, each part which finds its full significance only in relation to the whole scheme of scriptural revelation. In our interpretation of any single part of scripture, therefore, we must be guided by the teachings of the whole of scripture. Only by applying this rule to our reading of Scripture shall we be able to avoid the error of veering off into the unbalanced and unbiblical teachings. Number 3. The Covenantal Content of Scripture The Scriptures contain the doctrine of the covenant and the history of the covenant. The covenant is God's way of relating to mankind. Man is a covenantal creature and his relationship to God is always in terms of a covenant. This covenant can and has been described as a treaty. In describing the covenant as a treaty, however, care must be taken not to give the impression that it is the result of a process of bargaining in which God and man come to some kind of compromise with regard to their respective rights and claims against each other. Such a process may be a feature of the treaties that men make between themselves but there is an essential difference between the treaties of men and the covenant of God. The covenant is not a negotiated treaty. Such a process may be a feature of the treaties that men make between themselves, but there is an essential difference between the treaties of men and the covenant that God has established with his people. The covenant is not a negotiated treaty between God and man. It is a fact of creation, and the terms of the covenant are defined and established by divine authority alone. Man was created as a covenantal being and cannot properly be defined except in terms of his covenantal relationship to God. Men may accept or reject the terms of the covenant, but he cannot escape the fact of the covenant 
nor of his creation as a covenantal being. In other words, he may be a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker, but his relationship to God is inescapably covenantal, and he must bear, in life and death, the consequences of his response to that covenant. The concept of the covenant is central to the teaching of the Bible. If we fail to understand and appreciate the significance of the covenant, we shall have failed to understand the Bible. The scriptures cannot be understood properly except in terms of the covenant. The covenant defines the relationship that exists between God and man, and thus also the relationship that exists between man and the rest of creation. The former relationship is expressed in Scripture in terms such as, I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26.12 to Corinthians 6.16 The latter, in terms of dominion, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28 The terms of the covenant regulate both of these. The terms of the covenant regulate both of these relationships. Thus, the covenant embraces the whole of man's life. The covenant that God has established with his people is one of grace, and therefore entered into by faith alone. This was so in Old Testament times, just as it is today. The Old Testament does not set forth a covenant of salvation by works. The Old Testament believer was saved by grace through faith, no less than the Christian today. However, to be under a covenant of grace, in other words, to be saved by grace, means to be under the law of that covenant as a way of life. And this is so today, just as it was in Old Testament times. The Old Testament gives us the history of God's covenantal dealings with his people before Christ. It also sets forth the terms, or law, of his covenant for all time. And Christ confirmed this when he said that he had not come to abolish the law, but to cause it to abound. Matthew 5.17 The New Testament shows us how this covenant is applied in the Christian era, but it is the same covenant renewed in Christ. The concept of the covenant is something that runs through the whole of Scripture. God established his covenant with the patriarchs and their posterity after them, and he delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and gave them his law on Mount Sinai. But, as time passed, the people turned away from God and flouted his law. They practiced idolatry and broke the covenant that their forefathers had entered into. The result was judgment, for the law of the covenant sets forth both blessings and promises for the faithful and cursings and judgments on the unfaithful and rebellious. Deuteronomy 28 Yet God preserved a faithful remnant of his people that the purpose of God might be established and his promises fulfilled, and afterwards God re-established or renewed his covenant with this faithful remnant. In this way, the one covenant of redemptive grace was renewed with succeeding generations as they realized that they had sinned and departed from their God and, subsequently, turned back to him in faith and repentance. This renewing of the covenant with successive generations gives the impression 
of various covenants. And, of course, in one sense, it is correct to say that there have been various covenants. For example, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenants, etc. Yet, these are different covenants in form only, not in substance. They are renewals of the one covenant under which God redeems his people by his free grace and establishes his rule among them. The new covenant of which Jeremiah speaks in chapter 31 is the final renewal of this covenant of redemptive grace in Jesus Christ, to whom all previous covenants had pointed, and in whom they found their true meaning and purpose. Objection It may be objected here that, if the Christian or new covenant is the same covenant that prevailed in Old Testament times, then why is it called a new covenant in the scriptures, and in what sense is it new? There are, of course, significant differences and adjustments between the Old and New Covenants, all of which turn on the fact that the central figure of the one eternal covenant of redemptive grace, Jesus Christ, has now come in the flesh and accomplished the work of redemption in history. These differences are important, and it is vital that we understand them. But we must also remember that the substance or content of the covenant remains the same. It is only the form that has changed. The Christian, or new covenant therefore, is the renewal of the same covenant of redemptive grace that prevailed in Old Testament times. Nevertheless, the fact that Jesus Christ has now come in the flesh and accomplished the redemption of his people in history means that the Christian covenant is a new covenant in a very special sense. There are four ways in which the Christian covenant can be said to be a new or better covenant. The first difference relates to the fact that with the coming of Christ there is a full revelation of God's redemptive purpose. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God's redemptive purpose was revealed progressively throughout the whole period of Old Testament history. The revelation was not given all at once, but rather unfolded gradually from the promise of deliverance given to Adam after the fall, namely that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. There is a promise of deliverance here, but the way and the means by which this deliverance would be accomplished is almost totally veiled. This promise is like a seed from which God's redemptive purpose grows. As history unfolds, there is also an unfolding of the revelation of God's redemptive grace, until finally, with the coming of Christ, we have the full revelation of God's saving grace. Revelation ceased after the apostolic age. Therefore, since in Jesus Christ, God's redemptive purpose is fully revealed. The Christian covenant, therefore, is characterized by the full revelation of God's redemptive purpose in Jesus Christ. The veil has been lifted. We see more clearly than did the patriarchs and the prophets, and the canon of Scripture is closed because God's revelation of himself and of his saving grace is disclosed fully in Jesus Christ. 
The second way in which the Christian covenant is a new or better covenant relates to the sacrificial law of the old covenant. The sacrificial law regulated the sacrifices and ceremonies which took place under the old covenant. It set forth the necessity for an act of atonement before sin could be forgiven. It specified what was acceptable as an offering and regulated the way in which that offering was to be made. It also specified who could officiate at these ceremonies, namely the priests. These sacrifices typified Christ, as did also the priest who administered them. We are told in the epistle to the Hebrews that it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10.4 It was not the sacrifice of these animals themselves that took away the people's sins, therefore, but the fact that they prefigured and thus found their true meaning in Christ, whose one act of atonement does take away sins. By faith they received the promise of Christ and his work of atonement, and, hence, forgiveness of sin, though this was administered to them under the form of a shadow or type of the Lamb of God. It is, of course, true that Christ's atoning work on the cross was veiled in these ceremonies and sacrifices, and therefore that the people did not see clearly that to which they pointed, yet the fact that the full revelation of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ did not come until he came as a man and dwelt among us, does not alter the substance or content of the earlier revelation. And, obedience springing from faith in God, who alone stipulates what is an acceptable sacrifice for sin, is what is required of God's people. Without faith, these sacrifices meant nothing. Salvation came to believers in the Old Testament no more by the works of the law than it does to the Christian today. Salvation was always and only by God's grace in Christ through faith. The difference between the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer is only in the fact that before Christ's incarnation, his atoning sacrifice for sin was set forth and administered in a veiled fashion under the sacrifices and ceremonies which form the content of the sacrificial law. Now that Christ has come and accomplished his work of redemption in history, these sacrifices have been fulfilled in his one act of atonement on the cross. The priesthood which administered these sacrifices has also been fulfilled in Christ. His one act of atonement and reconciliation has permanent validity. The observation of the ceremonies and sacrifices has therefore now ceased. But the substance of the sacrificial law is still valid, namely that, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 The difference now is that Christ has shed his blood once and for all time. The purpose or meaning of the sacrificial law has, therefore, been realized finally in Christ's death. Since the coming of Christ, therefore, the sacrificial law is observed only when we look to Jesus Christ in faith and put our trust in his atoning sacrifice for sin on our behalf. Thus, the substance or content of the covenants with the respect to the necessity for an atonement for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God is the same. But in the Christian covenant, the efficacy of the one who makes that atonement 
is new and everlasting. Third, although the substance of the new covenant is the same as that of the old, since the coming of Christ and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the dynamic is new. The prophets had promised that a time would come when Christ would pour out his Spirit on all mankind. Joel says, And it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Joel 2, 28-32 Isaiah says, My salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Isaiah 56, verse 1 There are, of course, many more prophecies which say the same thing. The coming of Christ was the great event to which the prophets of the Old Testament had looked forward. Now that Christ had come, all these prophecies were being fulfilled. And, with the full revelation of God's grace in Jesus Christ, there came a new dynamic and a pouring out of God's Spirit greater than ever before. The new covenant is characterized, therefore, by a new and more powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit, though the substance of the covenant remains the same. The fourth difference between the old and new covenants follows directly as a result of the third, viz. that the purpose of the greater manifestation of the Spirit in the Christian era in order to enable God's people to preach the gospel with boldness and thus extend the covenant beyond the boundaries of the nation of Israel into the whole world. Before Christ, Israel was the only covenant nation. Of course, individuals from the Gentile nations could and did become converts to Judaism, and it was the responsibility of the Jews to proclaim and bear witness to the message of salvation with which they had been entrusted. Romans 2, 19 and 20, 3, 2. For God had chosen and appointed Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations. Isaiah 42, 6. But Israel was the only nation in covenant with God. Since Christ, however, this has changed. The covenant is now for all nations. The great commission which Christ gave to his disciples confirms this. Christ has commanded us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19 The English translation of this verse does not really convey the true meaning. However, we tend to read a sentence like this as if it said, Go therefore and make disciples from all nations. This is because English does not have a verb meaning to make a disciple of. The Greek does, however, and the phrase all nations is the direct object of this verb. In other words, Christ is here commissioning his followers to make disciples of the nations themselves, not simply disciples from among the nations. The covenant is therefore no longer restricted to Israel. It is for all the nations as nations. Again, the substance of the covenant remains the same. But in the Christian era, the scope and application of the covenant is new. 
all nations are now to be claimed for Christ and disciplined under his rule and authority. The kingdoms of this world are to become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Revelation 11:15. Thus, to summarize, the covenant is a binding contract or treaty between God and mankind, which defines man's relationship to God and to the rest of creation, with the following qualification, that for the man the covenant exists by virtue of his creation in the image of God, that is, it is a fact of his creaturehood, not an agreement that he enters into as an autonomous consenting party. This covenant binds all men, and through man the whole creation. This does not alter the covenantal nature of life, and thus he must still face the consequences of his broken relationship with God. After the fall, God redeemed his people by his free grace, and thereby re-established or renewed the covenant with them. This renewed covenant relationship is entered into by faith, resulting in repentance, that is, a turning away from sin and obedience to God's will, as set down in the covenant law. The new covenant is the renewal in Jesus Christ of the one covenant of redemptive grace that has prevailed since the fall, and the promise of deliverance given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. But it is a new or better covenant in four significant respects. 1. In Christ we have the full revelation of God's redemptive purpose. 2. The sacrificial law has been fulfilled and perfected in Christ's death as an atonement for sin, and is therefore no longer to be observed. 3. Since Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit, the dynamic is new and far greater than ever before. And thus, 4. The scope of the covenant is now far broader than ever before, encompassing the whole world and every nation on earth. It should also be said here that the newness of the Christian covenant does not affect the abiding validity of the terms of the covenant, namely the law, since it is only the form of the covenant that has been changed and not the substance of it. Christ has not set aside the law. In principle, the sacrificial law has not been set aside. It has been consummated in Christ's work on the cross. And this is the reason that the sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament are no longer to be observed. The substance of the sacrificial law has been put into force permanently by Christ's death and has resulted in a change in the form of its observance. This, we now look to Christ alone and his death on the cross as a propitiation for our sin and thus the means by which we are reconciled with God. In other words, we now observe the sacrificial law in Christ alone. Thus the cross, rather than abrogating the law, testifies to its abiding validity. Christ came and died for sin precisely because the law could not be set aside and, by so doing, he established its inviolability. God's law is thus to be our guide for life today, just as it was for the nation of Israel long ago. 4. The Goal of the Covenant Why is all this so important? Is it really necessary to know all this in order to live the Christian life? The answer is yes. It is not necessary to know all this in order simply to become a Christian, but 
it is necessary in order to live consistently as a Christian. What do I mean by this? It has been said that it is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. Not only is this possible, it is, unfortunately, a fact of life for many Christians today. This is because salvation is seen today primarily in terms of a private personal experience, or at best, an experience or way of life which is confined to the boundaries of the institutional church. But this is a seriously distorted view of the Christian faith as it is set forth in the Bible. It is a view that has rendered the Christian community utterly impotent and irrelevant in our society today, and it must therefore be challenged and rejected if we are to live consistently as Christians. The Christian faith is a total way of life. It is a way of thinking and living which embraces every aspect of man's life and being. If we are to live out this faith in the totality of our lives, we must understand what the scriptures have to say about how we should live. This brings us back to the covenant. We cannot escape the covenant. Christianity is the covenant. The life of faith revolves around the covenant. Why? The covenant is God's plan for victory. What is that victory? It is the redemption of this fallen world. This redemption has been accomplished definitively in Christ's death and resurrection. But this victory at Calvary must now be worked out in history and in the lives of God's people. We are commanded to claim the world for Christ. The Apostle Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not walk according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destroying of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 This is the mandate that God has given to his people. We are to subject the world to the rule of Christ. This is the goal, the purpose which the covenant holds before us. The covenant is a covenant of grace. That is to say, a relationship established upon the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and entered into by faith alone. But it is also a covenant of dominion in Jesus Christ. In other words, we have been saved by grace through faith in order that we might subdue the earth for the glory of God. The victory has already been won. It remains now for God's people to work out this victory in history. Thus, the covenant gives us a goal, a purpose for living, viz. dominion in Christ. But it also gives us a means of achieving that goal, namely the law. It is the law which guides and instructs us about how we should live, both as individuals and as a society. We are saved by the grace of God that we might live for Christ. The law shows us how we are to live for Christ, and thus how we are to achieve the dominion to which we are called in Christ. By applying God's law to our lives and to our society, we shall begin a process of reformation or reconstruction in our land. This must start with ourselves, with our own lives, and those for whom we are responsible before God. But, it must go beyond the personal, 
to embrace the social dimensions of life also, and thus, eventually, to embrace the whole of life and society throughout the whole world. We are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. Mark 16.15 In this way, the kingdom of God will grow and Christ's rule will be extended over the whole earth. Conclusion Christ's victory at Calvary is worked out in history as the nations are evangelized and brought under the discipline of Christ. This is the Great Commission to which the people of God have been called. But we cannot hope to fulfill this mission if we do not seek to understand and apply the scriptures of both Old and New Testaments, because it is these scriptures that set forth the covenant under which God is determined to redeem the world. Without growth in our knowledge of and commitment to the teachings of the scriptures, we are at best saved souls with wasted lives. I am now back where I began with the scriptures of the Old Testament. The scriptures of the Old Testament are vital for the Christian life because they set forth the terms or law of the covenant under which we have been under which we have been redeemed and now live. The New Testament presupposes the abiding validity of the doctrines of the Old Testament and the New Covenant in Jesus Christ can only be understood properly in terms of the perspective of these scriptures. It is thus impossible to live consistently as Christians and fulfil our great commission to make disciples of all nations if we are not prepared to study and apply to our lives and societies the teachings of the Old Testament and the law of the covenant which it sets forth for all nations. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.